This teaching, Comparative Religions. Obviously, with a title like Comparative Religions, there's absolutely no way that we can cover this in about a plus or minus a little bit of about an hour because of the in-depth. We could take any religion that we're going to speak about tonight, and it could cover years to do it justice and certainly to go through a litany of those. It would take much more time than this. But I want us to just look at the top of the mountains. And in doing that, I believe God has given me a format for it. That will give us, uh, because as I said, this is not going to be comprehensive, but not exhaustive, because there's no way you can make it exhaustive in the time frame that we have. But I think there'll be some good things that will be said tonight that will bless you. And not only that, but will bolster your ability to go out and defend the faith. And when we talk about some of these things, and you'll know some of the background of the people that you're dealing with as you look into some of this. There are so many faiths out there claiming to be Christian all over the world. You see people who said, yes, we're Christian, but then their lifestyle does not attest to that. And that's what we have to look at. We, there's certain things we have to, to guide whether a person is Christian in the Bible. And somebody says, you don't have the right to judge my Christianity. Yes, I do. The Bible gives me that latitude, and it's by this, by their fruits, you shall know them. And we do have a right to pass judgment all the time. We do that in our life, in our souls every day. You can't go through one day without passing a judgment on something. So we certainly have the right to pass a judgment on someone. Somebody is not a Christian. Obviously, by God's right, we can't look into their heart, but we can look into their fruits. And it says, by their fruits, you shall know these people. And that's one of the byproducts of walking in the Spirit, is we know these people. So there are many faiths that claim to be Christian. But let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. No one can be a Christian unless they attest to Trinitarian theology. You cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in Trinitarian theology. And simplistically put... Trinitarian theology believes that the God encompasses a person called the Father, a person called the Holy Spirit, a person called the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet there's only one God. It is complex. It's a wonderful mystery, but it's not that we can't understand that. We can understand it enough to move on it. Even a person who is limited in their cognitive ability can still understand Trinitarian theology. I know that because of the first chapter of Romans says that he can use anything. He can use conscience. He can use nature. And the Holy Spirit speaks through all of this. Obviously, he can speak if somebody comes and does a missionary work or if somebody sends him a Bible, somebody sends him a page of a Bible because Jesus said, if you're searching for him, I come walking to you in the volume of the book. You can't turn to any page on the Bible and not find some type of validation for Trinitarian theology. Now, we're not talking about when we talk about a one God. God in three persons, what we're talking about is uh, not the Father becoming the, the Son and the Son becoming the Holy Spirit and, and all those making up the God. That would be three gods, and we're not polytheistic. We are monotheistic, and that means we believe in one God who presents himself in three persons. And it, the people who hold to that, one becoming the other becoming the other, that's called modalism, and that's not what we are. We are Trinitarian. When you deal with the Father, you are dealing with everything there is of God. It's not just a third of God and the other two-thirds are someplace else. Anytime, because I guarantee you that most of the pastors don't understand this, and 99.999% of the pew does not understand that. Most of them think about the modalism aspect of it. 
the fact that one becoming the other. But no, when you deal with the Father, you're dealing with everything that God is. When you deal with Jesus, He's God. The Word became flesh. That means He was everything God. And when it talks about what He talking with the Father, the Father to He, because they don't operate in time frame. God is not limited to time frame. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts in chapter 5 says, You've not lied unto man, you have lied unto God. And that means everything that God is. And yet the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, make up the one and only God. So to be a Christian, quote, end quote, you have to believe in Trinitarian theology. God says this. God in Psalm 150 says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. So God has planted within the heart of every living thing that hath breath, animal, mineral, man included, there is some way for those to praise the Lord. I believe that when the birds chirp sometimes, they're not only communicating with each other, but in way they are praising the Lord. I believe that when the animals make a sound, there's something in that that's praising the Lord. I don't understand all of that. Don't purport to. But every person has that desire to praise the Lord. He's planted that desire within every soul. And in John 1, chapter 1, it says, and this is Jesus speaking, that he was the true light. What does that mean, true light? It means the one and only, because the inference there is there are other lights Bible says there are many who claim to be Jesus, many who claim to be God, but there's only one God. He says, he was that true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So every man that cometh into the world would encompass those who live on Park Avenue in the top of a penthouse, those who live in the gutter someplace, those who live in third world countries, second world countries, those who live in no country at all, who in the jungles of Borneo or some other place in the darkest part of Africa or Indonesia in the darkest part of, of those places, God has a way of speaking to those people through nature and their conscience. They know not to do certain things. They also know to do certain things. So he's planted that within every soul that no soul is going to ever stand before God in plain innocence or ignorance. He's made a provision for every person to do that. Adam was the first man. Talking about comparative religions means that there are many religions. We're just going to compare those. And Adam was the first person to display any type of seeking of another God. He got involved in that. And it came to me as I was preparing this message. I think the Holy Spirit dropped into my recollection something that I've known for ever since I came into the Pentecostal movement from the, my Baptist roots was that I believe this is the first time we ever got an entrance and knowledge about evil spirits that are connected with this, the false religious spirits. That's one of the things that attack people every time we start dealing with religion, Christianity, and word things where we're trying to grow in God, share the word of God. I guarantee you, and mo I think most of us tonight are spirit-filled. That means we speak in other tongues as an evidence that we have re received that. And we don't get everything that God has. I'm preaching this to the people who will be listening to this on tape and through the Internet later on. We don't get everything that there is at salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, and maybe we'll teach on this sometime, is a second work of grace. I believe, I differ from some of my dear brothers in this, I don't believe the church was born 
on the second book of Acts, when the Spirit came down and they spoke in other tongues, I believe the church was born. Besides that, the church is a New Testament term. It is not mentioned in the Old Testament, and it will not be mentioned after the church is raptured out. It is a time frame from the time that Jesus looked at the people after he was crucified, and he said, remember this? He said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. I believe that that was when the church was born. And I believe also in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came, I think that was an empowering. The word is dunamis. It's a dynamite. It's an empowering to do the work of God because I've never seen anybody display, although a lot of things are available to them, I have never seen anybody display much authority and power until they have gone through what we call in term the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the way that we believe that you do that the way I confess it and teach it and preach it and believe it is that when you do that and God baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, then he gives you a prayer language and he makes a lot of other gifts more fluid in your life. It's not that people could do that. People can prophesy, but I don't think that they can speak in tongues and with a prayer language until they do that. And maybe some time later we'll talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the ramifications that that has. So you have to be Trinitarian. And I believe that in Adam... We see the first introduction of what they call the, the false religious spirits being active. And as I said, anytime you start dealing and contending for the faith, I guarantee you those spirits are in your proximity. They're trying to hinder, but praise the Lord, we, we have the victory in that. The Tower of Babel was another example where man tried to exalt himself above God, find another way to get to God other than what God said about it. And he says that they desired a name. I don't know of any denomination, and some are worse than others, that say, oh, yeah, I'm Baptist, or I'm Presbyterian, or I'm full gospel, or I'm so-and-so, you know, this is my faith. And Sometimes it troubles my spirit because I, I think they're lifting up their name more than they're lifting up Christ. Tower of Babel, they wanted a name, and that name there means a conspicuous position. And I see behind that what people try to portray when they talk about, I belong to such and such a church. You know, and they seem to kind of swell with pride. Yes, I'm a so-and-so, and I'm a so-and-so. And I see that pride entering into it. And God had to scatter them. He had to scatter them, and he had to confound their language. It means that he dispersed them, all of them, and he did that by confounding their language. And how he did that was he mixed their languages. They could no longer understand one another, and it talks about the language there. He ruined their language, and he caused it to be like dialects. And if we don't live too far from the northern people in this country, but there's a lot of people up there I have difficulty understanding, and they speak in English, and I'm speaking southern and English, and we, we just have trouble communicating, and every part of the country has some a little bit different. Dr. Violetta comes from the Philippines, and uh, there has told me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not widespread, multiple islands, hundreds of islands, and yet one part of the Philippines cannot understand the other part at all. And so, yeah, it, so God dispersed them by mixing their language, and he scattered them by doing that. And the inference is that they went to the four winds of the world. And so, of course, I understand that to be that they went to the southern hemisphere, the southwestern hemisphere, the uh, northeastern hemisphere. And the way that God did that just some few thousand years ago 
was at that last at that time we were on the very end of the last ice age. It had been down for like ninety five thousand years, and it was starting to recede. And yet the land bridges between Africa and Australia were still there. The ice bridges from the northwestern part of Europe to the northeastern part of the United States, what's well, now the United States was our continent then. There was an ice bridge where they came across there. There was in the Bering Straits from the, the eastern part of Russia to the northwestern part of what we now call the United States, our continent. That area was traversable by people walking across that. But the melting of the ice age and the last of it when this was happening, I believe this is the magnitude of God that he allowed that to happen when he could let the people be dispersed to the whole world. And uh, shortly thereafter, the bridge between Australia and Africa, that overflowed with the melted water. That was the land bridge, the ice bridge between northwestern Europe and northeastern United continent that filled in with ice and frozen water where they could no longer do that. The Bering Strait thing between there and the southeastern part of Russia, that now is, is complete with water except for the few chains across that Bering Strait area. So when I see things like this in the Scripture, and then I tie this to the scientific truth that we have, I see how great is our God. that He timed all that before the world began. He caused all these things to happen where man could be dispersed when they chose to rebel and look for another God. Anytime people start to look for another God, they're always going to run into a problem. God is going to have to address that, and he will address that, and he'll get as many away from that errant philosophy as he can. Let me just say this. If we talk about religion, and we, we talk about it like it's a certain thing. Well, religion is not a noun. Religion is an adjective. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with a person. We don't have religion. We have a living relationship with Almighty God. This is another thing that is so magnanimous when we grasp it, is when you become a Christian, you have the God of gods living inside of you. And I feel the spirit of the Lord stirring me now as I say that. It, isn't it an awesome thing that God in his omnipotence, everything that he is and can be, you're not, you don't have just a little goosey pimple feeling. You have God Almighty living inside of a Christian. And the more that we grow in him, the more that we learn about him. That's why I, I applaud all of you who are here tonight because you've set aside this time to come and to learn a little bit more, to put more into your repertoire so that you can make pieces fit together more, I think it's going to make it more viable when we see how magnificent is our God that he chose in all of his splendor to come and live inside of a clay vessel such as we. And then when we learn what his plan is for us for eternity, it just gets so awesome that we don't know it all. But what I can see is just an awesome thought about when we pass through this veil and get the next phase of what God has for us. So religion is not a noun. It's an adjective because it's a describing type of a thing. Uh, it depends on how you apply that. The Bible, when it uses this term, it only uses it, I think, one time, as I remember, in the New Testament. And then all it has to do with is how you're supposed to act in a given situation. But Christianity is relationship with the living God. That's why when that happens, God cannot dwell in darkness. 
That's why light and darkness can't mix. A person can't be half Christian and half in the world. That's why if we try to be a Christian and walk one foot in one out, we are old people most miserable. But the more we grow in God and the more that we learn about who he is and what he is in us and what he does for us in blessing us, promises that we have. So tonight we're going to be dealing with uh, more of the notable religions. There's no way that we could cover it. I don't even have a desire to talk about some of the new age junk that's out there. Only a person with limited capacity or else who's believed a lie or been satanically or demonically controlled or heavily influenced believed any of that junk. But we're going to touch on some areas tonight that will give you some ammunition for that. The one true faith began in the Mesopotamian area. That area around a little bit north and west of the uh, Persian Gulf area, up in the Babylonian area of Iraq. In that area up there was where the ark came to pass. And so that was where God chose to begin his work in that particular area. And I noticed that when I started thinking about this, that being the nucleus, this area was like the nucleus And from there, it kind of radiated out like dropping a pebble into a calm stream. It kind of radiated out from that. And what struck me as I began to meditate on this, when you look at that particular area, that's where some of the stronger types of faith are, were, and are. Most of them are errant, I'll give you that. But the further you get away from that, the more demented and confused they get until you get to the extreme about them. When you get down into the south of that, if you get into the north of it, by the time you get to the extremes, the people most of the time are in polytheistic religions. So that's really a problem. And the further out it goes, the more strange that the thing began. So in talking about that radiation process, the first area we wanted to look about after God dispersed the people was the area in the Far East, the Far East, thinking about Japan and that particular area. The dominant Religions there that we want to just point out in case you in the Far East that I looked at was called Shinto, S-H-I-N-T-O, and it means the way of God, and it's a 6th century B.C. faith, and it focuses on rituals and philosophy. It, it loves to deal with those kinds of things, and, you know, if you get involved, build anything on rituals and philosophy, there is no end to it. There's no answer to those because it's such a viable, flexible type of a philosophy. If one person's philosophy is good as another, although they kind of tend to central around some. So Shintoism, that's what it looks like. The other one in that area is Buddhism. Buddhism, this just means the enlightened one. And this was also a 5th century B.C., a a 100-year period earlier than was Shintoism. And so Buddhism, the enlightened one, if he lived at all, they're not only sure about whether he lived or not, it holds four truthful elements. And these means that the people are seeking. They're seeking in these four elements. One element, the main element, is called Dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, Dukkha. And it means, this will tell you a little bit about it, it means suffering, anxiety, dissatisfaction. Isn't that something to think about all the time? 
And then the other three built off of that one. The, the next part of that is the origin or the seeking of the origin of Dukkha. And the next one, the third one, is the cessation of Dukkha, how it's going to end, the workings of it as it starts to end. And then the last one is the path to the cessation of Dukkha, how it's going to end and how it's working toward a given end in my life or my family or relationships. So, And that's what those people who hold the Buddhism are searching all the time. They never have a moment's peace in their soul. Wouldn't you hate to live like that, never have a peaceful moment? I know some Christians who are that way. They're deceived, I believe. I believe they're Christian, but you never see them at rest. They're always in anguish, and they're always fighting something. In fact, as the Bible talks about a certain element, they're always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So God is simplistic in his approach to man. He realizes our limitation, and he meets us on whichever level we are. If we hold a Ph.D. in some things, God can teach us things because we've gone so much to get there that we can understand some things that maybe some others does not, although that's not a cardinal rule. It's the growth in God is not based on how many degrees you have. It's how you've lived as the Holy Spirit. Yield it to him and let him reveal things to you. Therefore, a Ph.D. sometimes is not as wise as a person of of very elementary education because the person of elementary education has yielded to God and God's taught him supernatural truths. So Buddhism, that's what Buddhism does in that area of the Far East also. The next one is Confucianism, and that's also a 500 B.C. teaching. And he was a Chinese philosopher, Chinese in that area, philosopher, His ministry began as a response to Buddhism, and he stresses family, social harmony, and the humanistic part of that, uh, values and dignity. Now, there again, you know, that's that's an open-ended thing. It's viable, and and it's flexible, and there's nothing hard and fast about it. It's a seeking continually to try to reach these things, and it seems like the Far Eastern thing. And then when you back it up a little bit mileage-wise, we get involved in the Mideast area, and here we find Islam, and Islam means submission, Submission to God, but it just means submission to those who follow God. That's how they transliterate that submission to God, total submission to them. Uh, They hold that his prophet was Muhammad, and he, he was born about 570 A.D., in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, that's where he was. In fact, when I was overseas, I was stationed just a few miles from there, and my son was stationed not too far, and we have a lot of servicemen and women now who, are, who have been stationed in that particular area also. I did a study of Mohammed one time, not an in-depth study, but enough to why I wanted to try to understand the man. And I think that when he began, I think he was a quality person who was just seeking truth. But he started isolating himself away and trying to find it on his own. And he had been exposed because he had been a trading uh, trader traveling into that whole geographic area, which is pretty much his world at that time. And in doing that, he was very exposed to Jewish influence. That's why a lot of his teachings, a lot of the Koran is based on Jewish writings. He held a lot of those. He perverted those in his own writings. But I think he was a quality young man until he shut himself away in the cave and became deceived by false religious spirits is what I believe because there is no certain person like Allah. And that's what he says. That's the spirit who came to him, a spirit being presenting himself as Allah. And he bought into that, that error and false impression. 
He started about age 40 was when he started this movement. And, and those who did not agree with him, he conquered by the sword. And that's never changed since 500 A.D. Plus, in that area, if you didn't believe with them, they conquered with the sword, and they still hold that philosophy today. Then Washington is never going to dialogue peacefully. They're never going to have detente with Islam. It won't happen because Islam holds that. It's stronger than any negotiation. So that's just what the playing field is there. Islam is built on five pillars. Five pillars. One is faith. It believes in one God. Now, here again, you see how this is starting to happen when you talked about the Far East. It has a certain amount of, of gods there, polytheistic in their approach. The further you get back to you get into uh, this area, it believes in one God. Islam believes in one God, but it's a perverted God. But there again, it below grew up out of that particular Mesopotamia, slant, middle, mid-east area. So it's five pillars. The first one is faith. They believe in one God, remote, untouchable. They believe in prayer five times daily. The third one is charity. This just means alms. And the way they do that is they're supposed to give according to their ability to give, their means, how wealthy they are. So in every religion, there are some good things, and most all truth, most error comes riding on some kind of a truth, a little bit of truth. The, the fourth one is fasting. They're supposed to fast, and that's a compensation for the God allowing them to repent. And of, of course, they do that. Fasting is part of Ramadan that they hold once a year. And the, the last one it has to do with Ramadan is called the Hajj. And that's where every Muslim, if they're at all able to, they're supposed to go to Mecca and do a Hajj to Mecca one at least one time in their lifestyle. And so if you want an interesting uh, understanding of that, you can pull that up on the Internet and, and understand more about what they do that. But under Islam... Every other faith must submit to Islam. Every other government must submit to Islamic government. If ever a Islamic person has ever set foot into another country, that country is ordained for Allah, and they'll defend that. It never belongs to the people anymore. It now belongs to Islam, and they're going to come for it sooner or later. So when our politicians try to uh, find a way to pacify them or to have some type of negotiation, I know it's a worthwhile endeavor, but like the country boy said, they ain't never going to get it. It ain't never going to happen in our lifetime, but I'm just more and more feeling the impetus that this, this life is getting closer and closer to termination. God has a lot for us, and I think it's going to culminate very, very quickly. As you move on in the radiation of this, we get into the southern part of the Mideast. You, there you get involved in the in India area, which is Hinduism, and that is a way of life. It's a way of life. Not It is a religion, if you want to call it that, but it's more of a quote-unquote way of life. And its goal are ethics and duties, prosperity and work, emotions and sexuality, Liberation and freely, jockeying with all of these, intermeshing all of these, finding a way to make these work in a person's life. That's what Hinduism is about. Therefore, it's no wonder that they're troubled in their soul. It's no wonder that their mind is always confused. It's a wonder that they never find any answers for anything because it's always beyond their grasp that they're dealing with these things. So Hinduism, it has no governing body. It has no holy book or binding authority in, in word or scripture. Uh, 
Its goal is emotions and sexuality. It has no supreme religious authority. So it's just a, a mix of associations and conflicts of error in thinking and trying to adjust these things. So a, a person who's a, a Hinduistic, they can choose to be whatever they choose to be. They can choose that. They can choose to be pantheistic, which is a, what the nature people do. They can see God in the nature. The pan, as they look across the, the whole creation process, they can find, they can believe if they wish. They can be polytheistic. They can believe in many gods. And obviously in India, we've heard that most of those, they think the animals on the street represent some of their uh, ancestors. You know, the bugs represent certain thing of their ancestry. And when if they live a certain life, in the next life, they're going to come back and enjoy a higher plane than they did I mean, I feel sorry for these people. I really do. And these are the people we're going to be encountering. And I applaud you for being here because I believe you're going to get some ammunition that when you encounter. Now, some of these we don't encounter too much. Others, a little bit later on, we will. And you, I think you'll pick up some tidbits there. So they can also choose to be monotheistic if they wish, one God. Or they can choose not to have any God. They can be atheistic if they want to, no God at all. So they got all of that type of flexibility in them. Then we go into the Mideast, the Mid-Mid-East. So in this particular area, we get involved in uh, orthodoxy. It uh, talks about correct belief and right belief. They're seeking that. And they conform to certain creeds of the early church. They bring in those things, and we can see evidence of that. The, the swinging lavers, you know, and the, and the candles and the fumes and the incense and the robes and the artifacts that go along with that, the pictures of stain and all those kind of things. And they are monotheistic because they, they're closer to the radiation uh, autograph in that. I think they're in error a lot of, in many, many areas, but they purport to be Christian and they purport to be monotheistic. But some of those things we would say they're not for the church. We don't accept a lot of that type of trappings. I think they're beautiful. In one way, it would be nice and and pleasant if if we could adhere to some of that thing. But God no longer dresses his ministers up in gowns and flumed hats and all this type of paraphernalia that you have to do to get to God, you know, the, the incense. Because when we bring those through the cross and we get into the new covenant, then we have those things, but we have them in a different vehicle. The garment of praise, the worship and prayers going up before God in, as a sweet-smelling savor. So we don't, have, we don't do that. And a lot of ministers today are trying to bring back these trappings and say, yes, you, if you want to be near to God, you've got to have a prayer shawl or you've got to have uh, this type of a trapping or that type of a trapping. No, God doesn't require that of us. In the mid-mid-east and in the northern mid-east, we see this orthodoxy with uh, beliefs and and conformity to creeds, and also they're monotheistic. We see this in the Russian Orthodox Church. It has a lot of fellowships within it, but there again, it carries a lot of these type of trappings in it that they look pretty, but I just don't think they're part of the New Covenant. Have to, so put it that way. I don't think we have to do that, and I could make a certain amount of latitude in it, but not much because I think it distracts, and it, it gives the impression that the person who does that some kind of holier than the person who sits in the pew, and that's just nuts. That's not necessarily so. A lot of times, the person who's sitting in the pew is more holy. They're not more righteous necessarily if they believe in God, but there are qualities of holiness that differentiate people.
So then we another part of that mid-Mideast is the Greek Orthodox, and we've seen some of those. fact is, we, we have some of those in our area here. They have, again, have several bodies and, and uh, groups that hold to this uh, Greek Orthodoxy. They, they're very liturgical, and they teach from the Koine Greek, which is the language of the day of the first century. They adhere to that. And there again, this, some of this is, looks good, but I'm not a liturgical person. So it's Greek Orthodox, very liturgical, and uh, they do have a lot of the formality, as I said, the ropes and the incense and the rituals. And their emphasis is on monasticism. That, that means they don't like any worldly pursuits. They just kind of want to live the uh, stoic kind of life, and out of those comes your monks and your nuns. They come out of that type of thinking, the asceticism. That means they're abstaining from all the worldly pleasures. And then when we get in that, the western part of the east, we get in Judaism. And uh, mainly Judaism really is uh, Yehuda. That's where we get the word Judah from, Yehuda. And it's monotheistic just as was uh, Islam. But their approach to the, to the monotheistic creed is, is very different. So it's monotheistic. Its holy book is the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. Its tenets are one God. It has the who has no comparison. He's the first and he's the last. He declares himself to be that. Judaism adheres to that. We pray only to him. And we would agree with that. We, we, in fact, is we would agree with that tenets of those things. And the last one is he rewards those who keep his word. There's nothing in that that we wouldn't agree, but it does not become a bondage to us. It's not a bondage to us. And, of course, Judeo-Christians, we came out of that. We came out of Judaism. The Western East, the East and the Western part of the East, that's where you get involved in Roman Catholicism, comes out of that area. It claims to be the continuation of the first century church. They claim that the apostle Peter was its first head. They would call him the pope of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. They would claim to be Peter. The Bible doesn't call it that at all. They, they claim that Peter was in Rome and did all these things. No, the Bible never, in Peter's life, by none of the historians and posterity, never places Peter at all in, in that part of the world at all. So we believe that they're in error there. They have popes and bishops as Peter's successor. And there again, if you dismiss the premise, then we would dismiss the validity of any pope or bishops or cardinal or the pope himself. And I've stated this in certain areas where we associate, and it causes turmoil. Because any of these, when you confront any of these, you, uh, and we can't back away from that. I know Christians who I'm not going to get involved because it involves an argument. I say, no, you, you don't argue this. You contend for the faith. And my premise is, a person who adheres to any of this has absolutely every right to believe what they want to believe. But I also have every right to contend for the faith. Roman Catholicism, they believe in the, uh, that they're the only true church. I know they don't say it that way, but that's exactly what they believe. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible talks about there is a true church. But it's not Roman Catholicism. It's those who would believe and they've been, have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one true church. So we can argue with them on that basis. Bishops, they say, can forgive sins. 
absolve a person of their sins. Bible says man can't do that. God doesn't let man do that. That's not. A, that's one of the provisions that's reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the forgiver of sins. The Catholic Church does not say. It talks about papal infallibility most of the times. That when he speaks at cathedral, he's, he is infallible. We don't believe that. We think if you wear a pair of pants, you know, only God is infallible. And you see some of this. So we don't believe the Pope has any infallibility to him whatsoever. He could speak some truth, but that doesn't make it infallible. They would say that uh, they don't preach about the cult of Mary. And they sometimes say, oh, we don't worship Mary. Well, they do worship Mary. They pray to Mary. They pray through Mary because they hold that Mary is co-redemptist of the universe. She is co-advocate for the humankind so they can pray through Mary to get to the son. And as he did at the marriage of Cana, he will listen to, to her and say, okay, we'll, whatever she says, we'll do it. But no, it doesn't work that way. That's not it. They, they prefer the scriptures. They're not going to talk about Mary being the, the co-redemptive. They're not talking about the, the perpetual virginity of Mary when the Bible is very clear that Mary had at least four sons and at least two, maybe three or more daughters. So Jesus was just the first one. And God said, you can't have physical relations, you and Joseph, until he's born. And so Mary had no perpetual virginity, and so they've erred there. They're against the scriptures there. They talk about Mary's bodily resurrection into heaven. That didn't happen. She wasn't raised giving uh, the same type of resurrection as Jesus Christ with. They try to equate her to Jesus every time they get a chance. She's not co-mediator with Jesus. They pray to the dead saints, the apostles, set them on their dashboard, set them in their house. God doesn't allow us to do that. He does not allow us to build images and pray to statues. He, that's a clear no-no. He does not allow us to pray to anybody in that vein to have our prayers answered. The way Christians pray is to the Father by the power of Jesus Christ, his authority under the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we're to pray. Now, can God receive prayers through ignorance or through, uh, if we're too excited in a time of turmoil to say, oh, Jesus, God will honor that. But once we've heard and have time to apply the correct formula, then God, that's, that's the formula that God expects us to use. I hear a lot of well-known ministers. I can minister, and I can speak names, and you wouldn't know these people who say, I pray to the Holy Spirit every day. And I say, you're not supposed to do that. He doesn't want your prayer. He doesn't want to receive your prayer. If you have to, there's a way he can do that if you're in ignorance, but these people know better. They say, yeah, well, I pray to Jesus all the time. And I say, we're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to pray to the Father in the authority of Jesus by the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we're to pray if we have time to do that. So that's a method of praying. The Roman Catholic Church believes in purgatory, where a person goes who hasn't earned the right to be in heaven quiet and not the obligation to go to be in hell until then they can be prayed out of that. They can sometimes they can pay penance and be bought out of it. No, uh, Dr. Violetta and I was ministering to somebody probably about oh, six or seven, eight years ago. And the person had just died and they asked me to pray. And I didn't know the circumstances, but I prayed. And in the prayer, I'm kind of paraphrasing. And I said, this person who has died, I said, they're, they're either in one or two places right now. They, the state that they died in is the state that they're in right now. And, of course, the people were Roman Catholics, and uh, I don't think they appreciated it too much, but that's right. One millisecond 
fact is, there is no time between when a person dies and they're either in heaven with the Lord or in Abraham's bosom with Jesus Christ or they're in hell in torment. There is no purgatory. There's no second chance in the thing. And Roman Catholicism holds a lot of these errant things. And that's why Roman Catholicism is an apostate religion. It is not a viable religion. It's apostate. And we try to minister this to a group of people now, Dr. Villette and I, and we're having great resistance, but we're warring. It's not our philosophy against theirs. We're warring for their soul. And they're, they're blinded in some of these areas. And, and they, you can feel the antagonism when we're around some of these people, you know, that they, they think it's an insult and that we're combating them and it's not them. And I know that there's religious, false religious spirits involved in all of this. And they're happy with that. And sometimes they say, leave me alone. I'm, I'm happy with what I got. And I think, God, you don't even know what, what you're missing in this thing. Okay. In the western part of the east, there's the Anglican Church of England. They purport to be Christian, but their head is the king or the queen of England as the Anglican head. A, they say that they're a continuation of the Catholic or the universal church. That's what Catholicism means is universal. You just attach the Roman Catholic to it. So most people, when you say Catholic church, they think Roman Catholic, but actually Catholic just means universal. Roman is just means it's that particular segment of it. And uh, they say that uh, it's a continuation of the Catholic Church, which they felt was instituted by St. Augustine in the 6th century. And, of course, we would contend with that because there again by their fruits. You'll know them. When we get west of Europe and toward the east coast of this continent, there's all types of religions here from the east coast to the west coast. And in looking at this, you know that when we get from the east to the west, that is about as, maybe if you look into, uh, although I, I don't really think it reaches into Hawaii, I think when you get to the western coast of the United States, you've gone about as far as you can go. Although you could say the international dateline may be it, and that's some somewhere out there, uh, Guam, in that particular, because it kind of zigzags when you get out there. But I believe that that's probably where the west ends and the uh East begins just like the prime meridian is over in uh, in England. Uh, I believe that when you get to the western part of the United States from the east to the west, you can see many types of religion, many faiths. I'd rather call them faith than than religion. There we start seeing Protestantism, which really had its birth in the Reformation movement of uh, of the 15th century. Protestantism, if you're a Protestant, then you must believe in Scripture as the highest authority above anything else. That's what has dominance. That's going to be the most religious bug in the world when he gets out of here. Our Scripture is the highest authority. As long as we quote it, we're on solid ground. And that's why I tell somebody, if I give somebody a truth and they say, I don't accept that. And I say, well, you're not, you're not arguing with me. I'm just telling you what the Scripture says. If you have an argument, go argue with God. I'm not arguing with you about the validity of it. God's already said that's what it is. Protestantism says we believe in justification by faith alone, faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's called solo fide, faith alone. We believe that you must have faith alone in him. You can't tie anything else to it. Works have no place in the atonement process of God. As Protestant, we believe that. You don't get there. That's, that, that's what Ephesians talks about. It's only by grace and not by works, lest any man should boast. It doesn't, we cannot tie I mean, works to it. 
And I'm reaching back now, and it flashes across my mind when I get to some of these areas. A few years ago, I had to deal with a pastor. He calls himself a pastor. I wonder if I was deceived for a long while because we had fellowship, and I thought he was what he purported to be. But then I don't believe, in fact, I believe he was solid when we started uh, dealing with one another because I don't think I could have been that uh, close to him. We enjoyed a lot of personal fellowship and family fellowship, and and, and I I dearly, I thought the world of the guy. Uh, But a few years ago, he was teaching another faith that had works involved in it. And I tried to send him some corrective letters, and he wouldn't receive it. And finally, last, I just had to share. I just hadn't given him growth barrels of why I thought he was in the air, and he's never responded. And I thought, well, I don't know. But if he's still teaching the same thing, he's teaching heresy to this day. And the sad thing is, I mean, he has a right to do that. But when you stand before people and teach error, you've got people on your soul. Your answer, then the blood is on your hands. If you don't lay it out there the way the Bible confirms it, and you preach what the Bible says, that a person can't do this and they do this, once you've said that, and I, I said that myself, I, I told people, I said, this is what the Bible says about this thing. So from now on, your blood is not on my hands anymore. Now your blood is on your own hands, and I'm not going to say anything more to you about religion or, or Christianity. What you believe in, what I believe. I've shared with you what I believe God has to say about it. You can reject it or not, but if you do, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God because they're rejecting me along with it. But that's okay. I've got broad shoulders and a strong back. Doesn't bother me a bit. I've been living for God too long, too far to turn back now for the opinion of men or anybody. I'm I'm not going to do that. I've got a line in the sand. I'm not going to cross it for anybody with the help of the Holy Spirit. I just refuse to do that. So that's Protestantism. Works have no place in it. It believes in the universal brotherhood of believers. We are not, we are separate in in our universality of brotherhood. We're brothers in the creation part under Adam, yes, but we are particular brothers in Christ. That's why our brotherhood in Christ transcends race. It transcends economics. It transcends education. It transcends socioeconomic standings, anything. That's why we can get along with each other. And if it wasn't for the oil of the Holy Spirit, we would be warring with each other continually. We would be at each other's throats all the time. But when you put us together, God causes us to blend because he puts the oil and the wine of the Holy Spirit to make us happy and the oil to keep us from being frictional one to the other. That's what oil does to an automobile, isn't it? It keeps the friction from building up and making the engine seize. Well, that's what God does. He pours the Holy Spirit into all, and we just we just love one another, and we appreciate and the individuality. We we give each other the right to be individuals, but above it all, we hold our Christianity, our brotherhood in Christ, more important than we do earthly relationships. If it's errant in that, yes, absolutely. So Protestantism. The universal brotherhood of believers, we believe that we have the right to read the scriptures and let God reveal what they say to us. A lot of people don't allow that. A lot of religions don't let their people read the Bible. They say, we'll talk about one of those in a moment. They said, we'll tell you what the Bible says. We'll tell you what the word says. You just, you just follow what we tell you. And that's a dangerous way to go. Dangerous philosophy to follow in that. We believe we have the right to take part in the public affairs of the church. That doesn't mean that we if we belong to a fellowship, that as long as the pastor is following Christ, then we should follow the pastor's leading because he should be getting what's from God. And if he's not, then, you know, and that's just the way I counsel people. I'll say, hey, if you don't agree with what the pastor is preaching, 
Make an appointment. Go to him one-on-one. Don't start gossiping. Go to him one-on-one. But you just may be ignorant of what the Word is saying about it, or he may be in error. And if he's in error and and he will not conform, then, you know, don't throw a bomb in in that fellowship. If they won't go with you, then just have to uh, shake off the dust and move on. And and I've had to do that in things along my walk with the Lord. Some people haven't understood what I've done, and I did, and I no longer could fellowship them on a continual basis. You know, I, I can go back to a lot of places now and have a moment, an hour or two fellowship with them because they're Christian. But to fellowship with them on a long term basis, I can't do that. I, I've moved on a long way. They're not spirit filled. I am spirit filled. Okay, so Protestantism. I adhere strongly to Trinitarian theology. We believe that you cannot be Christian if you don't adhere to Trinitarian theology. Three persons in the one God. Also, embedded in that Protestantism, you have Lutheranism. That's basically the belief that they they identify with Martin Luther in his doctrine. They have two main points in that. They have justification, which uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, based on Scripture alone, I agree with that. They have the authority of the Scripture. I believe with that. It's just they have a lot of other trappings that are not good. And today, only 30%, as, as I have researched this, 30% of Lutherans now hold to the authority of Scripture. They don't believe the Scripture anymore. Is Only 30% of them believe that Scripture is the final word on a thing. In Protestantism, you have Presbyterianism, Presbyterian Church. Uh, that's just a name that comes from the kind of government that they have, the form of church government. Uh, it's, it's, they're governed by uh, representatives among the elders of the, the assemblies, and it emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the authority of the Scripture, grace through faith alone in Christ. And I agree with that, but it's there again, it's how they apply those things. It's some of the collateral things that go along with it. And used to, if you went down the, the street and you saw a Baptist church, you knew pretty much what they believed, depends on what kind of Baptist it was, you know, if it was free will or Southern Baptist or whatever type of Baptist, if you saw, you know, a full gospel church or, you know, Assembly of God, Church of God, you know, Foursquare, whatever, you knew pretty much the difference if you were in that movement at all, but that's not so anymore. You know, you can see a church and you don't know what they believe. And if it's an independent work, it's only as strong as its leader. And if its leader is a 1% wrong, it's wrong. If they're 100% right, that's good, but there again, it may be an infantile ministry with an infantile minister, and that can have problems. So you have to weigh it, because you cannot look at churches today and tell what's going on behind the walls. And we have a chance now to visit different churches. We, we have a while there. We couldn't do that, but we do visit different churches. And I'll tell you the honest truth. I have difficulty finding churches that I can fellowship in anymore. I come out of there and my soul is just too burdened. I thought, Lord, I, I just feel terrible in my soul. Now I'm so beat down. I go to church to have elation time and praise God and receive some edifying word from a man of God who's preaching the word of God with the demonstration of the, of the gifts of God flowing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, healings. And you just don't see that. Even full gospel churches anymore, it's rare when you can find that type of a fellowship. And I realize I'm dated some, you know, the worship and praise. There's things that 
that I would much rather, if I could find the church, it goes back to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the type of worship then. But I know most of those have moved on in contemporary thing. I don't like it particularly, but there, there is one ministry I can still find that I can enjoy some of that. But even the preaching of the gospel and demeanor of the, of the pastoral staff is troubling to me. And so sometime I'll like, no, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do what the Bible says, you know. It's not good to, to be alone, you know, and not fellowship with believers, but I, I'd, I'd much rather find me a place where I can I can fellowship. Now, there are a couple of non-spirit-filled churches that I visit with every now and then in the area because I go there and I'm blessed. I couldn't go there on a continual basis because I wouldn't want to sit underneath that. I'm sure you know what I'm, I'm talking about. The Episcopal Church, uh, governed by bishops, it's rooted in the Church of England. The Episcopal Church is rooted in the Church of England, and you can see that in the trappings. You know, there again, the gowns and the and the incense and the you know swinging of the of the cursors and and all that type of thing. Censors. Uh, they came into existence after the American Revolution in the United States. After the American Revolution is when they had their beginning. Uh, it uh, allows great latitude in the interpreting of scriptures, and the Episcopal Church. They ordain practicing homosexuals. They bless same-sex marriages. They reject the uniqueness of Christ. They advocate the allowance of abortion on demand. They reject how God has revealed himself to the world and through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. So this is why a lot of people have left that and it's left them to a desolation ministry. Now, in they're trying to reach the people. You don't see, well, in some areas, they are still quite strong, but it's very, very liberal. And, of course, anybody who's a Christian, I, I don't think, could stay in that very long at all once they start learning truth. Okay, now we get involved in something we meet a little bit more. And although we see Presbyterian churches, we see Episcopal churches, uh, I, for one, don't have a desire even to visit with those ministers. I wouldn't minister in them at all. But when, then we get into uh, ones we meet more readily in our environment today, and, and that's the Church of, uh, of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, which we understand as Mormon, Mormonism. Uh, they're very prevalent. They used to come to my door. I don't get many anymore, neither do I get Jehovah's Witnesses, because I used to have a good debate with them, and I don't know, I've been told that once you go, once they go back to the, their home logistical area, that they log the places where they're going to meet knowledgeable confrontation, they don't go back there anymore. So I haven't had these people at my door in, in a long while. The Mormons, uh, their founder, of course, was Joseph Smith in the 1820s in New York. They self-identify as Christians. That's what we talked about earlier. By their fruits, you'll know them. They say they're Christian. Well, are they? They really are the church. They say that the church was an apostasy, and it was restored through Joseph Smith. Because Joseph said that God said, what church do you want me to join when he was starting to move? And God said, he said, God told him, you don't join any of them. They're all, they're perverted, all of them. I'm kind of paraphrasing. You can't join any of them. So that's why they, he said, you're going to do this, go it this way. And that's why they called themselves the, with the article the, the means a particular one, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. So it's not a part of the church. It is the restored church that God restored through Joseph. He said they are guided, they say, by living prophets and apostles. 
Their, uh, their canon consists of the Bible, as far as they say as it's, as it's translated, the Book of Mormon, which contains the writings of ancient prophets who lived the early American uh, continent, doctrines and covenants. The doctrines part was uh, removed by some of the church people, they say, and the, the covenants are relating to uh, on many subjects, just a litany of different things is their book of covenants, doctrines and covenants, and also the pearl of great price, which is really the uh, aspects of the church and how they function. They, they say that the angel Moroni visited with Joseph Smith and uh, told him where to go in upstate New York and dig for the plates, which contained the uh, doctrines of Mormonism. And he said he went there and found that. But some of the problems with the church, and I'm, this is an addendum that I'm giving now that the problems that they're going to have with people is, uh, is what they call the doctrine of Adam God. That's where uh, God was on a, uh, another planet, and he came to this planet because he had progressed as far as he could in the school of, of life. And because of exaltation, he was sent to this uh, planet with one of his celestial wives, Eve. And uh, they say that he is Michael, the archangel, that uh, the, in their sexual relationship, they had Jesus Christ. That was just their first child. They hold that the Trinity is three separate gods, not one God, three separate God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate gods, which makes them polytheistic. And anybody who's polytheistic cannot be a Christian because Christianity is monotheistic. They hold in, now this is, this. they never speak about this at all, but I found it in, through another ministry, and it, it's very troubling. It's called the, uh, the blood atonement, and Joseph Spirit says, I'm paraphrasing now, he says that there are some people who sin such grievous sins that the blood of Jesus cannot atone for that. So they say that only that individual's blood can atone for that sin. And what they do, they take him into a place, and the elders that have been appointed to do that come in. They ritualistically sacrifice this person by killing him, and therefore his blood pays for what the portion that Jesus Christ's blood cannot pay for. That's called the blood atonement the blood atonement sacrifice. And they never say anything about that, but they definitely teach that. And they not only teach it, they carry it out, which is ritualistic murder within their denomination. Talk about the next one you want to cover here is called the Jehovah's Witnesses. We see Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, probably Jehovah's Witnesses more than we see many of the others. Uh, I'm kind of glad we didn't get a Mormon for president, although I'd take him over some of the people in history that we've had. But anyway, Jehovah's Witnesses, their founder was Charles Taze Russell in the 1870s. They believe that only they have the true God. Their members must totally submit to church authority, Jehovah's Witness authority. They can't think for themselves. They can't reason for themselves. They can't make their own decision where the church is involved. They have to adhere absolutely to church authority. They believe that Christianity is an apostate religion. They don't claim to be Christian. They say that Jesus Christ was the first creation of God, Michael the archangel. They say he received immortality for his faithfulness while he was on earth, and he died never to come back again. Now, we don't need to hear any of that. 
They have three classes of people. They have the elect, who are the 144,000 that they believe will go to heaven, and then they'll end up reigning in heaven under Jesus in the heavens for the people who are on earth. Next, they have what they call the sheep. They will be ruled by the 144,000 and Jesus, who is Michael Archangel. And then they have the third class are those who have lived good lives, Good, they get an opportunity to earn salvation after they die. And if they, if they had a good enough life, then they can earn their salvation. Otherwise, they will be annihilated. Christ's death did not atone for sin. It only purchased earthly life and blessings. And these, these were what were lost through Adam's sin. They preach that there is no hell. They believe that uh, the soul sleeps. After that, until it's annihilated. Next one, we don't see too much of, although it's around us, I understand. I've never had really much dealing with the seven-day Adventists. They purport to be Christian, and they seem to be Christian, but they have a lot of errant doctrine that they attach to that. Their founder was William Miller, who was a Baptist minister, and Ellen G. White, who she's passed away now, but they hold her who succeeded in that position as the head of the church. And they hold that Ellen G. White is the ultimate interpreter of Scripture, that she is the ultimate, not the Bible, but Ellen G. White interprets the Bible. If, if there's a little bit dif- differentiation from what the Bible said, then they go with Ellen G. White. They, they say that sal- salvation depends on one's faith and good works. We know that you can't tie works to it. They say that one must keep the Sabbath day or that they'll have the mark of the evil one upon them. That's the day of worship, the Sabbath day. Well, the Bible doesn't put that on anybody. The Bible says if you want to believe in the Sabbath day, that's fine. If you want to believe in Sunday, as the church has since the, since the raising of Jesus, that happened on the first day, which was Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Sabbath just means seven. So the church has always held since the first century that Sunday was a day for the church to worship. But the Bible even says that. We don't need to hear that on anybody. If a person wants to do on any other day what they should do on Sunday, is worship God, have their mind focused on Him. You can do that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday. But uh, Sunday would be more appropriate because that's when the saints can come together. But you need to adhere to that type of thing, you know, that particular trappings on that particular day, consecration to God, prayer, thinking about Him, living. You don't have to fast on those type of days. But uh, if a person wants to believe that way, that's fine. That's their latitude. The Bible says some people believe in one day, some believe in others. Every person has to be, you know, make up their own mind. But I believe if we're going to be with, with the church today, that we're going to have to adhere to that. You know, we don't have to adhere to it, but you're more comfortable meeting most of the saints if we get involved on Sunday. In fact, just sadly enough, and this is an addendum, uh, if you're going to meet with the saints, you better do it on Sunday morning because they're not in the church anymore the whole week, which I think is a mistake, too. I think I think it's like if I only ate on Sunday, I'd be very hungry by the next Sunday. So I believe we need pastoral food all the time. And I don't I don't believe it's right for pastors to to not having be having Sunday night service. Now, this this is just my thoughts. OK, I'm not dictating anybody. I'm just saying with the way with this is to me. I, I've seen what happens to churches if you don't have uh, food through the week. And I've seen what happens to them uh, if you don't have any evening service on Sunday or and I'm not saying you have to 
bond. It's not bondage things, but people just need food and they need the fellowship of more than just one time a week. But I'm not enjoining that on anybody. Every pastor is going to have to deal with that in his own, but not only deal with it, but he's going to have to stand before God because people drift into a lot of error. Uh, through that type of thing of not being fed on a continual basis. And uh, I don't believe that just a layman can fill that by prayer groups and, and fellowship groups on, on any particular night. They can do certain things. And I think Sunday school and prayer groups can have a, a good consequence if they're under the uh, authority and leadership with the pastor either being present or know exactly what's being taught because he's going to stand before God and answer for that. Because a pastor is ex officio member of anything that's happening in his church. He has an obligation to know what's going on and, and lead that church. And the people should follow him. That's what I used to tell people when I was pastoring per se. I said, uh, you have an obligation to follow me as pastor as long as I'm following, as long as I'm preaching truth and following Christ. But anytime it's obvious I'm not following Christ, and you don't have to follow me. I would enjoin you not to. Go find some place, another pastor, where you can find one who's following Christ. So that's the problem with the seven-day Adventists. They, uh, they say you have to keep the Sabbath day. The faith and works go hand in hand. They believe that humans do not possess immortal souls. They believe in soul sleep after death. They believe that the wicked will be resurrected, judged, and annihilated. They believe in that open homosexuals cannot be ordained, but the open homosexuals can hold uh, offices and membership in their church. Well, I would, I believe I would argue vehemently against that. They have also what they call that, that Jesus Christ right now, and this is one of the biggest things that caused them a problem. Uh, they have what they call the investigative judgment that believes in 1844 that Jesus Christ is now in, in the Holy of Holies in heaven deciding who will or will not be saved. Well, he settled that 2,000 years ago. And I heard a person that filled in a lot of my spiritual gaps, and he had a lot of things to say in an area that I really needed, and I, and I really appreciate his mentorship when he was teaching something about an area of this that I didn't, didn't agree with. I, I was really parted ways with him, and that's what we have to do. We, we have to war wage what people are telling us against uh, what people are, are saying about the Scripture. I know a lot of ministers today are teaching it's okay to have a drink of wine or a beer. And I've said before in the pulpit, I've never seen, but I think it's two people in my whole life that could have one glass of wine and leave it at that, or one beer and leave it at that. And I've been around a lot of guys who drank in my formative years. In fact, there's a work I did back then, everybody drank. To my knowledge, everybody drank. There's a, it's just not... In fact, is this particular minister I was thinking about, he, he said that if a person wanted to have a drink of wine, you know, that's okay. The Bible's not against it. And some of the people who followed his ministry said, oh, yeah, there's a ministry in Texas, I think is nationwide, maybe worldwide known. And he's told people, yeah, you can, you can have, a, you can have a, a drink of wine or you can have beer if you want to in your seclusion, you know. And my thought is, man, what are you telling the people? The Bible, when you start looking at strong drink, you know, the Bible is very adamant about that. You know, it talks about the, the drink is raging, and those who drink alcoholic not only get drunk, but uh, who drink it, you're killing part of your body. And the Bible says those that kill the, the body, Jesus will kill. So there's, it's just not for—now, in, in the Old Covenant— 
A person could not be a prophet or priest. Well, they could be a prophet, but they couldn't be a priest or a king. In the new covenant, we are prophet, priests, and kings. And the Bible is very explicit. It's not for kings to drink wine or, or you know, strong alcoholic drinks. And a lot of people say, well, the wine in the Bible, you know, it was all alcohol. That's what this, this person I'm thinking about. He used to say, well, at the marriage of Canaan, obviously Jesus turned the wine into alcoholic beverages. And I thought, what a lie. Jesus Christ would never turn wine into alcoholic beverages. In the Old Covenant, the wine was called wine when it was still hanging on the bush in berry form. So when they took it down, they had the pressed wine was either fermented grape juice, which is most of the time what they drank, added a little water to it and gave it to the kids even. That's why it talks about take a little wine for your stomach's sake. That just means, you know, take a little of the fermented juice and with, mix with something else, it's okay. But the other part of, of what the second thing about was wine was it was an intoxicating beverage, and a lot of them drank that and got uh, intoxicated. And the Bible is very clear. We're not to give our minds to anybody. That's why this particular preacher or teacher worldwide and certainly known across the United States was he was very, he said he gave latitude to being people allowing themselves to be hypnotized. I said, no, man, I'm not going to allow any. I would, of course, first of all, I don't think I could be. I'm, I'm sure I couldn't be, but I wouldn't allow anybody to even try you know, because I, I'm supposed to keep my mind clear. And if you drink alcoholic beverages, your mind is not clear. If you have one drink of alcohol, your mind is no longer 100%. They've proven that by analysis. Uh, maybe some of the medical people here can verify that further, but I've heard reputable authorities say that, you know, wine is raging, and even a small amount of it does certain things to your body. When you take that small amount, you're no longer 100% rational. So a person has to be their own uh, judge and their own applier to this. Can you be a Christian and do those things? Yes. Can you be a Christian and smoke? Yes. Would you go to heaven? Yes, you just may go earlier than you, you know, than you thought you would. Can you uh, drink heavily? Yeah, you can do that if you want to. Bible warns against, but you could be a you could be a Christian and do those things. But uh, you can also die of cirrhosis of the liver, you know, before what God would really prefer you to do. Of course, He knows when you're going to die. He got all that marked in His book, and He takes all those things into account. Conclusion to this is, if we bring this to a close, is that. I really pray that something we said tonight has been informative for you, and I'm delighted that you've been here and turned aside. We had some people who called me and said they couldn't make it, and I, I miss them when they're not here because they, they just blessed me so. Uh, in Proverbs 14, it says, There's a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof is a way of death. Proverbs 14. So people can believe this thing, and they can believe that they're absolutely right, and they may, may feel good, and they may dance, but uh says the end thereof is a way of death. John 8 says, and Jesus is saying, I go my way. That means a predetermined way, John 8. He just says, not only that, but he says, and in going my way, you shall seek me. He says, and going my way, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sins. And whether I go, you cannot come. If you die in your sins, you go either to heaven with him or you go to hell. And those who said, if you're not seeking me, then if you don't know me, then Hell is your destination, and ultimately the lake of fire. John 8, again, Jesus is speaking. He says, I said unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if, 
the qualifier, if you believe not that I am, he reaches back into the old covenant for the name of God, I am, is what God revealed himself to Adam in, or, or to uh, Moses in the burning bush. He says, I am that I am. Ahya, ahir, I am, always am, present verb, present tense. If you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And if you die in your unsaved condition of sin, people go to hell. If you die with sin in your life, which most of us will do, no matter how well we try to live, we're going to die with probably some sin in our life, although we, we yielded to that. But that's covered by the blood of Jesus because he looked at the heart. 